Lord, that, that is our prayer, Lord. We come here tonight, we praise you, we think of your sacrifice for us, Lord, and we think of your great motivation, Lord, your love that you loved us even while we were against you, Lord. You laid down your life even while we were against you, and I just pray that you help us to realize that, Lord, that you help us to repent, Lord, that you help us to look to you knowing just how much you love us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, once again, we have the, the great privilege of celebrating communion with God. It's, it's our great privilege to celebrate communion with God because we get to come before him. We get to have that close relationship with him. And it's our privilege because we don't deserve it, right? He laid down his life for us in our wretchedness, even though we deserve wrath, even though we deserve condemnation. But instead of casting us away from him forever, he shows us compassion, um, in his great love, he made the way for us to have communion with him. And so the reason why he does that is his love, his love for us. And so he's here in our midst, in our midst hearing our meager praise, and amazingly, it, it pleases him. Not because our praise is particularly wonderful or anything, but because he's our perfectly loving father. So he's pleased with our sincere, joyful, heartfelt offering of praise and worship to him. Um, the singing of his beloved children, no matter what we sound like um, or how much we've messed up. Um, if we're his, he, he doesn't look on our sin. He doesn't look at how much we're, we're messing up. He simply loves us, right? Think about your kids or your grandkids or, or your students, if you're teaching a class, offering you something that's wholehearted and heartfelt. Aren't you guys greatly pleased, no matter how like, meager it is, no matter how like it's, if it's just like a little stick figure drawing or something, at some point, haven't you been pleased just because somebody who loves you has offered you something that's heartfelt? Um, it doesn't matter if the offering is like pocket lint or if it's like a cherished rock that they found on the ground. They're like, Dad, look at this rock that I found. I want you to have it here. And then they just keep giving you more and more, and pretty soon your pockets are full of rocks. Or, or yeah. Um, yeah, so it, as, as long as it's heartfelt, as long as it's sincere, as long as it's genuine, um, we're, we're going to appreciate the things that our kids give us. It doesn't matter if it's a stick figure or if it's, you know, it's, it's definitely not going to be like some Picasso or Rembrandt or something. Um, so I've, I have this drawing that my daughter Tabby gave me, and I love it. Why, why do I love it? Is it some priceless work of art? To me, it is, because I haven't carried it in my wallet for a while, and now it has like a prominent place on my office wall. It's precious because it's, it's a heartfelt offering. It, it says, hey, Dad, I love you. And that's her expression of love for me. That's her wholehearted, heartfelt offering. So we're well-pleased with our kids because we love them and they love us. So isn't God well-pleased with us if we're offering him what we've got, meager as it may be? So... Even though we're, we're wretched sinners, even though we were, were once his enemies, he still gave his son for us so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, so that we could be adopted as his own children, to have communion with him even though we're entirely unworthy. So as we continue in worship, um, sing to him wholeheartedly. Pour out your praise to him because when we rightly reflect, when, when we readily, wholeheartedly pour out our hearts to him and lives to him, humbly, brokenly, with awe, with praise, with love, with thanksgiving, he's going to be well-pleased with that. And hopefully that's, that's what we just wholeheartedly declared together in song as we began our, our worship set tonight, um, that our, our worship is a wholehearted offering of praise to him. It's good, it's right to sing praise and understanding, to truly pour out our hearts. 
And so the next song that we're going to sing in just a moment here, the first verse proclaims that his love for us is his motivation. It's the why behind why we're celebrating communion tonight. It, it starts with how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Our Father's love is deep. It's vast beyond all measure. It's, it's beyond what we can even comprehend. And that's his motivation. That's the why behind all that he's done for us. It's, it's totally undeserved. We're rightly described as wretches, and yet he still pours out his life for us. He, he, he laid down his life for us. He even treasures us, um, all because of his amazing love, mercy, and grace. The second verse proclaims his loving sacrifice for our sin, for our sake. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. His, his love was demonstrated by his sacrifice for our sin. That's the how. That his love was demonstrated by his death. It, it, his, it was proven by his willing sacrifice. John 15, 13 tells us, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So his love was demonstrated by his sacrifice for our sin. That's, that's the how of our communion with him. So we declare that he, he laid down his perfect life for our sake, that it's our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So as, as we continue in worship, we, we have to realize that we ran up our sin debt, that he, he paid the price on our behalf. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 5.6-8 tells us, for while we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man will scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the final verse of the song that we're about to praise Him with proclaims our boast and confidence are in His death and resurrection. Again, even though we're not deserving it at all, He poured out His blood. He laid down His life for our sake because His love is that great. And then he took it up again. And that's our boast. Verse 3 says, I will not boast in anything, no power, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. It's good for us to worship in understanding. So we're going to sing the song. Hopefully you're, you're going to pour out your, your wholehearted praise to him. And then we'll, we'll get into our text for today and as we practice communion, as we continue to, to worship later, pay attention to the lyrics that we're singing. Pay attention to, to what we're proclaiming to our God. So tonight, as we prepare to partake of communion, please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be studying verses 12 through 26 today. Believe it or not, we've already had two topics, but our third topic is that our boast and confidence are in Jesus' death and resurrection. So our boasting should not be in any of our gifts. It shouldn't be in our power. It shouldn't be in our wisdom, but only in God's gift, his power, his wisdom, his love. Jeremiah 9.24 says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. 
Our, our only boast should be in knowing and being known by God. So why then boast in Jesus' death and resurrection? We boast in his death because it's how he made the way that we might be saved. We boast in his resurrection because the proof of his promise and his power. Now, his death isn't disputed. It's a fact that's accepted by all who are reasonable. Even our calendars reflect this, with our years being measured since the birth of Christ. Although many of those of the unbelieving world aim to erase even this reference to Christ, they, they demand the replacement of, of B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anna Domini, which is short for in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. They try to replace it with BCE or CE before the common era or common era. But even the unbelieving can't reasonably deny the historicity of Jesus' death. Let me quote um, Eddie and Boyd, who are not, not Pastor Eddie, but they're two scholars who spent some extensive time researching the extra biblical historicity of Jesus' life. They say, if there is any fact of Jesus' life, that has been established by a broad consensus. It is the fact of Jesus' crucifixion. So even secular scholars don't dispute that he, he laid down his life, that he was crucified. But our boast is in the purpose of his death, the promise of his resurrection. Because just as our passage today will point out, and I'll remind you of it in case you didn't catch it the first time, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 26. That's where we're turning. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 26. Our faith, our salvation, our eternity all hinge upon the Lord's resurrection. It's the proof of the power of his promise. It's the proof that he really is the son of God. It's the proof that his willing sacrifice was indeed the once and for all, all sufficient sacrifice for the sake of our sin. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast which is why our boast and confidence should be in, our, in his death and resurrection. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. That's exactly what our text addresses today. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Today, in this day and age, don't many of the unbelieving world say that resurrection is impossible? I mean, from, from the perspective of man, we can't resurrect someone. But realistically, this isn't a new, errant belief. Acts 23.8 tells us, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So even in Jesus' day, the Sadducees, just like many today, deny the spiritual entirely. They deny even the possibility of resurrection. But here's the bottom line. If Christ is risen, then resurrection is proven, isn't it? It makes sense. If he's the first fruit, then resurrection is, is proven. It's promised. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. It's a simple, logical statement. If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is risen, then there is resurrection. Right? So it all hinges on that. Verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. So if Christ is not risen, then the word here is saying that he's, he's a liar. 
his, that his teaching is false, that prophecy isn't fulfilled, and that God's word as, required, as recorded in the Bible and all of, our, all of our teaching, all our beliefs are baseless. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So if Christ is not risen, then there's no power, there's no promise, there's no eternity. And as a result, no eternal consequence for sin without re- resurrection. Without resurrection, we, we may as well live all out for sin, for self. Because if this life is all that there is, then why not lie and steal and cheat to get whatever you want without regard for anyone or anything else, right? If, this is, if, it's, if it's like a game and all you're doing is just living for this world, then there's no consequence. You might as well just simply, if you're just going to simply cease to exist, then who cares what God says about sin? And if sin brings you any joy or any pleasure, then, then why not embrace it if this life is all that there is? The question is, are, are we already living this way even though we know he is risen? If Christ is not risen, um, sorry, verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So another truth that we have is that if Christ is not risen, then all who have died have perished. That, that means that they're nothing but fallen flesh and bones. They're burnt up or buried in the ground. They're gone regardless of their belief. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ is not risen, then Christians who hope in him should be pitied. Because that would mean that our false hope would just keep us from living it up like the unbelieving world. It would keep us from pursuing the passions that are professed to be so desirable by the unbelieving world, right? Things like luxury or leisure or, or lust or travel stuff. I mean, all the, all the stuff that we don't necessarily pursue first or that if it's sin, hopefully we're not pursuing it at all, right? Um, but again, the question is, are we living that way even though we know Christ is risen? If Christ is not risen, there would be no cause for confidence in him, let alone boasting or for that matter, even remembering his death at all because it wouldn't mean anything. But Christ is risen, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is risen, and that should be our all-encompassing confidence. The resurrection is, is everything. That should be our wholehearted confidence. That should be the basis for every decision that we make. Because Christ is risen, then resurrection is real. Because Christ is risen, we're freed from sin and death by grace through faith. Because Christ is risen, we live for him eternally and not only for this earthly life. Because Christ is risen, he is simultaneously our loving and all-powerful Lord. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection are God's perfect plan played out. It's the only way that we could be saved. His plan is defeating death through a man just as men chose death through disobedience. God offers the gift of grace through faith, the choice to receive, to love, to serve him. He cleanses us of our sin and he clothes us in his righteousness through his loving, merciful, gracious redemption so that we're able to enter into his presence eternally. Verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Because Jesus has risen, 
we also will rise with him, resurrected eternally. Christ is risen first. He's the first fruit. He's the proof. He's the promise of, etar- of our eternal resurrection. Our sure hope, our assurance that at his return, all who are his shall rise again. This is our truth and reality today and forever. And it should rightly drive and define us so that our lives aren't the same as those who deny resurrection. It should be our boast. It should be our confidence. He's our king. He's our Lord. And we're his. We're already his. So we should have his kingdom now. We should bring it about now, even before he brings it to fruition in full forever. We should try to pursue righteousness and peace and joy in the strength of his spirit. Right now here on earth, in our daily walk, we should live a life lived out for him as his light to all. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We know that the last day is coming and that it's coming soon. The end of all the, the false kingdoms of this fallen world, the end of all false rule, false authority, false power. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every enemy will be defeated. We read here, even death will be defeated. There'll be no more death, but instead, an eternal separation once and for all. For those who believe upon our resurrected Redeemer will have eternal life with our Lord, separated forever from sin and all the associated sadness and sickness and pain and death. For those who reject him, for those who refuse his redemption unto eternal condemnation, there's going to be eternal separation forever from God, who is the source of all good, love, and light. And we know that separation is in hell. So we should be sure that our boast, that our confidence are in his death and resurrection. We should believe, we should live, we should boast wholeheartedly in him. So in light of his loving sacrifice, how can we not respond with devotion? How can we not respond with gratitude? Should we ever tire of reflecting on all that Christ has accomplished on the cross? No, we shouldn't tire of it. The question is, do we look to the cross with awe and gratitude, or has it just become a meaningless, empty cultural symbol to us? I hope not. We sang it together that the cross is enough. In fact, it's, it's the only way for our redemption. And every time that we see it, it should be a call to thanksgiving, to humility, to brokenness, to repentance, to praise, to hope, and to trust in him who laid down his life for us. The cross should rightly call us to and remind us to pour out our lives for our king, wholeheartedly holding nothing back for his kingdom, purpose, and this should be our our reasonable service, our reasonable sacrifice, offering our entire lives to him because he held nothing back to save us. Any less is to lose sight of the extent of his love and his sacrifice for us. He's, he's fully worthy. So our aim should be to draw all to him with the light of our lives, lived out, all out for our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. Shouldn't we spend our lives outright and forever devoted to our deliverer? We should. Living our lives in all of eternity in worship and praise with every breath, every moment, every action for him forever. Giving him all glory and honor for our un, undeserved redemption. We can't just be cultural Christians who, who give up when we're not getting what we want. It's, it's not about self-worth or self-righteousness, definitely not about warm, fuzzy feelings. That's, that's a false faith that's guaranteed to fail, to fall short, because it's built on us. It's built on our expectations. It's built on 
our wants and our desires. It's, it's the opposite of a wholehearted belief upon him. It's a self-focused faith that says, what will God do for me? But the reality is that he's already done it. He's worthy of our wholehearted devotion and praise and worship, not just song, but with our whole lives, everything that we could ever give and more because he's already proven himself. He's already demonstrated his perfect love and power. So our right and reasonable response is to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to him. And knowing his love and having our confidence in him as our loving Lord. So instead, we should look to him. We should wholeheartedly desire to offer up our meager service, like, like that stick figure drawing. That's, that's our service to him. And amazingly, he, he strengthens us in the power of his might and uses us for great good. So rightly remember and respond to his death and resurrection. If you want to turn back a little bit, um, we're going to read through 1 Corinthians 11, 23. I know I just taught it last, last month, but we'll read through it quickly. Um, so that we can celebrate communion in right remembrance and response. Again, communion is, is not some man-made ritual or pointless sacrifice, um, pointless practice rather. It's, it's commanded by Christ, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we rightly remember, we rightly respond to his death and resurrection in communion. We remember why he's made the way of salvation. That love for us is his motivation. We remember how he made the way of salvation. That his love was demonstrated by his sacrifice for our sin. We remember the price for his provision. His body broken, his blood shed for us for our redemption as the purchase price for his gift of grace, offered to you, offered to me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we proclaim his death until he returns for his church to rapture and later rule. Our boasts and confidence are, are in his death, they're in his resurrection. We proclaim it in word and action, why he died, what he accomplished, why we have hope, that he died, that he laid down his life because he loves us. So he paid our way. He offers forgiveness of our sin so that we can have eternal life with him. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We have a part in his plan of provision. Rightly remembering, rightly responding to his death and resurrection believing and accepting with wholehearted repentance. This is the worthy manner, being aware of our wretchedness in contrast with his mercy, turning away from our sin, running, leaping into his arms of grace, being drawn to him by his loving kindness. So examine your hearts for, for who or what is our Lord and then let uh, God judge and chasten. Verse 29, for he who e eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So partaking of communion is for those who have received the gift of grace, for anyone who believes upon Jesus as living Lord. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So if he isn't already your Lord today, today's the turn, the day to turn from sin to the Savior. Stop trying to judge yourself worthy because none of us are. We've all fallen short. We should all rightly judge ourselves guilty and turn to the one who took our place and receive his, his grace today. For those of us who, who love him as Lord, we should rightly consider all that we've been for, forgiven. We should let him show us where we've strayed from his spirit's loving leading and let him get us back on course. We should let him convict us of any forgiveness that we're clinging to, despite having been forgiven so much more by our Father. And then give it back to God. Let it go. Let him show us our ongoing, our ongoing sin so that he can free and cleanse and sanctify. Let him prepare our hearts before him so that as we worship him together, we can consider the words that we proclaim and praise and rightly remember and respond to the great and costly gift of our communion with him and his love that motivated it all. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for willingly going to the cross for our sake. We thank you for our great hope, the assurance that's been proven through your resurrection, Lord, your proven, powerful promise. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for making the way for us eternally, Lord. And we ask that you would help us to wholeheartedly examine ourselves, Lord, examine our walks, examine how we look to you, Lord, and proclaim your praises today in song and with our lives, every day of our lives, Lord, every day that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.